So I have three children. Uh, I have twin 12-year-olds, a boy and a girl, and I have a 10-year-old who's a girl. And we, uh, every single one of my children would, when they were little, would come to me and they would say just one word, and they said it a lot, broken, broken. When they were young, they would bring me a toy that wouldn't light up or a book that was missing a page, and then with tears in their eyes, they'd hold it up to me and say, broken. And this, this broken, this word was not just a description of the, the toy or the book, it was also a request that I would make this book or this toy whole again, uh, to make it work the way it was supposed to, to make it to repair it back to wholeness. And some things just required a new set of batteries or some scotch tape, and I was fine with that. But then as they've gotten older, I've realized that there's a lot of things that they come to me with that I cannot fix with, with batteries or scotch tape. They come to me with disappointed, disappointed feelings and disappointed relationships and hurt and at recess or in a friendship that's broken, and they, and they say broken, and I can't fix it. And that hurts a lot for me too. Broken isn't just a description that little children use about uh, their reality. Broken isn't just for little hearts, child-sized hearts. That, it's not just a request that they make. Actually, broken is something that all of our hearts are speaking about all of the time. When I think about our lives, when I think about the fracture lines in my own heart... In my life in particular, there are many areas I could focus on this morning. I could look at food, I could look at work, I could look at money, I could look at family, I could look at alcohol. But sex, like it or not, is a fact of life that dominates our heart's conversation. Whether celebrating the good gift of sex or lamenting when that gift is not working right. This kind of brokenness is inside of us, but it's also outside of us in society and in the church. And it's the kind of brokenness that new batteries and some scotch tape cannot fix. It's social, it's emotional, and it's spiritual fragmentation, and it needs a healer. A healer who knows intimately who we are and eternally what's at stake. A healer the Bible calls the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. In our passage this morning, Jesus, the word of God, is telling us two truths about sex. First, there is a false intimacy which promises wholeness but delivers only fragmentation. That is when we feel a desire to move towards someone else in their beauty and their God-given beauty, we, even in our well-meaningness, meaningness, <laughs> our well-meaningnessness, our uh, being well-meaning, uh, you and I can sometimes choose what, what feels like control in a powerless situation. We reach for lust. Lust is what the Bible calls uh, trying to control people sexually. This is because when we feel insecure or unattractive, we turn to the power that lust promises us. The second thing the Bible teaches us about sex is that there is such a thing as true intimacy, the true intimacy that promises to fix what's broken inside and outside of ourselves. And there's this whole scale healing that Jesus, who is the Messiah, that long-awaited healer, can provide. And so when we share our sexual longings and our sexual woundedness with Jesus, Jesus blesses what's whole and he fixes what's broken within us. 
Exodus chapter 20, verses 14, and then Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, these are shockingly yet carefully applying these two truths that are behind me about sexuality to us this morning. Because life and other people can feel so out of control, we turn to the power of lust. Because life and other people can feel so out of control, we turn to the power of lust. But only Jesus can give us the validation and the after, an affirmation our lust is truly longing for. Only Jesus can provide that validation and that affirmation that our lust is longing for. Jesus gives healing to our human condition by speaking, two, so speaking three truths into our sexuality. And these are also the three points for our sermon this morning. These are my sermon outline. You can cross out errands if you want. It's full permission. Uh, so first, Jesus defines what lust is and what lust is not. Second, Jesus describes how we handle our lust. And then third and finally, Jesus shows us how he handles our lust. That's where we're going. Those are our three points this morning. But before we kind of look specifically at what Jesus does here, the ways that he's approaching and speaking to our sexuality and our lust and then adultery, we need to take a step back. We need to take a big step back and to get a better look at where and why Jesus is saying these things in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is what we're looking at. And the Sermon on the Mount might just be the most famous speech by the most famous person in human history, Jesus, and the most famous book in the world, the Bible. But what's so amazing about all of those facts is that whether you call yourself a Christian this morning or you would not call yourself a Christian this morning, you and I, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the same way. Three more chapters of good advice I'm supposed to follow. But what if Jesus' words here and elsewhere are not just a simple to-do list? What if the Sermon on the Mount is actually meant to be read as Jesus intended, an invitation? Jesus inviting us to live differently, to live intentionally with him in this world. Jesus is asking us to see the world and to see our lives in a new way, with spiritual imagination. In the words of the theologian Tom Wright, Jesus is not just giving moral commands. He's unveiling a whole new way of being human. No wonder it looks strange. But Jesus pioneered it and invites us to follow. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And so when Jesus is, ad is addressing the topic of sex, he's inviting us into a new way of seeing a new way of seeing that recognizes and affirms ourselves and others and God. And so to get at the newness of this vision, Jesus chooses to contrast it with an older vision, an older view of his original audience. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus is correcting some well-known misinterpretations of the Old Testament. He says, you heard it was said, but I myself, that's emphasized in the original language, I myself now say to you, you can see that contrast going on. And he's quoting the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. But I want you to notice he's not saying, he's not speaking against it. He's not saying it's wrong. Instead, Jesus is doing something interesting. He's actually more fully applying the expectations of God to this command. He's, he's applying it to us as audience. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or you could easily restate it as this. Everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in her heart. To Jesus, lust is not just a male issue. And then, as if the single life were not hard enough, Jesus also goes after the married couples. <laughs> and he eliminates almost all the divorce-on-demand loopholes. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And again, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. And so you could just change the language and it'd be totally appropriate. You see this in the very end of that verse. Everyone who divorces her husband, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes him commit adultery. And so this is where many of us in the audience cross our arms internally and harumph. Just what I thought. Christianity is so retrograde, so behind the times. Repress your sexuality with no understanding of marital compatibility. Repress your sexuality with no understanding of natural sexual urges. There's no ability to be human up in here. What's this about? But what Jesus is saying here is so much more nuanced than our 21st century hot take. He's not just offending the 21st century sensibility. He's also offending the first century sensibility. And to see that, we've got to narrow our focus to one single word. It's this word translated lust or lustful intent in verse 28. In the original Greek of Matthew, the language that this is translated out of, it's this word epithumia. This is an interesting word to choose to talk about sex because it's most often not used in the first century to talk about sex. It's actually more likely to be used in the Bible even to discuss money, not sex. So epithumia literally means over-desire. Epi means over, thumia means desire. But if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word epithumia is not used for the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's actually used for the 10th commandment. You shall not covet other people's possessions. According to Tim Keller, epithemia, over-desire or coveting, is a form of greed. It's all about wanting something for yourself on your own terms. You have to have it. You can't live without it. It's something that you think about all of the time, day and night. In your past, or your present experiences, and your past or your present ambitions. It's all consuming. And so, Sid, congratulations on a really interesting word study. What does it have to do with my life? (laughs) Okay. Well, when we apply epithumia to sex, the lust for sexual pleasure is different than the gift of sex. It's different than desiring good sex in marriage. Because lust is selfish, addictive, and fantasy-driven. It's selfish, addictive, and fantasy-driven. Epithumia lust is a desire for something good, sex, that's allowed to fester until it's really not about sex anymore. And it takes a person and turns that person into an object. What was a passing urge, a passing feeling, or a view has now escalated. It's a, I must have it, 
I must have it now. I can't live without it, obsession or compulsion. Look, the Bible is extremely sophisticated and nuanced about sex. And I just want to apologize to you on behalf of the many ways that people like me in the church have misspoken about sex. Some of you have heard directly or indirectly from well-meaning Christians that God hates sex or he thinks it's dirty or sex is the unforgivable sin or your sexual abuse is your fault or unimportant. And I want to be very clear, those are lies. Those are lies. And they could not be farther from the truth. With more time, I'd take you through the entire Bible and show you the many intricate, wildly explicit ways that the Bible describes and even rejoices in selfless married sex. It'd be a whirlwind tour. (laughs) Uh, But for the sake of time, let's just start with the beginning and end with the beginning. (laughs) In the Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, is with God. But God says, hey, that's not good for you to be alone with me. And he makes for him a wife, Eve. And then they're standing there naked, face to face, unashamed. And Adam speaks the very first poem that's ever been written. And he speaks it, and it's an erotic love poem. (laughs) Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Any sort of sexual innuendo you can put into that is probably there. (laughs) It's about sex. And then some of you also, at the same time as uh, we have to kind of address the ways that the church has misspoken about sexuality, we also have to address the ways that the church has misspoken about marriage and divorce. You have directly or indirectly have heard some wrong and very hurtful things about divorce from, again, well-meaning Christians. And I'm sorry for that, too. And I want to say that there are biblical grounds for divorce. We actually see a biblical ground for divorce in verse 32, where it says sexual immorality, that is sex outside the marriage you're in, can be a cause for divorce. It's not necessary that you get divorced if that happens to you, but it can be a grounds biblically for divorce. And also, if you were to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you would see a biblical ground for divorce mentioned there too, called abandonment. A spouse leaves the marriage and leaves the, leaves the other spouse without consent. And that's called abandonment. And this plays out in many difficult pastoral situations for us. Uh, and one of those is domestic abuse, where it's proven to be no longer safe for one spouse to live with the other. That's a case for abandonment. I say all that, it's a lot, to recognize the many, many ways that everyone in this room has been affected by lust. And and also to recognize that it's not always our own lust that we're affected by. But how does Jesus suggest we handle our lust, our lust, our own lust, in singleness and in marriage? And so we're going to enter into our second main point this morning. Verses 29 through 30, Jesus gives us an intentionally exaggerated illustration. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Look, if the people in this room took that command seriously, like at face value, we'd all be pirates. Do you understand that? (laughs) We would all have removed our eye and have an eye patch, and we have cut off our hand, and we'd have hooks for hands. 
And I would be the captain of the SS Hope as pirate, as one of the lead pirates. Do you understand this? So every one of us who has gone through puberty, okay, whether single or married, male or female, professionally religious, or just visiting Christianity, thank you very much, all of us struggle with epithemia lost. All of us. So in verses 29 and 30, Jesus isn't giving us like an exact how to handle our lust problem. He's actually making a bigger point. He's saying you've got to treat this very seriously, okay? We've got to get seriously creative about the ways that we can redirect our desires. We need to think about how do we move our hearts and our minds and our eyes away from isolated body parts, away from happily ever after fantasy marriages that don't exist, away from getting people to do what we want when we want it for money or on a screen. And we need to move our eyes and we need to move our hearts and we need to move our minds back, back to real, actual, living human beings who disagree and disappoint us. We need to move our hearts and minds and eyes back to real, living human beings who have actual aging bodies with eye bags and stomach fat and cellulite and, yes, imperfect hair. Specifically, this is going to look like getting a filter for your computer, maybe, or confessing to a friend or a pastor uh, about your romantic intentions that fall outside the lines of your marriage. This might look like confronting the impossible standards that you have that makes you afraid to commit even to dating. It could look like engaging my senses in something that's less about me and what I want, like community service or the beauty that's found all around me in nature or in museums or in a person's story. Or more generally, this just might look like beginning with practicing relationships, friendships, family relationships, church relationships, where I adjust to someone else instead of expecting them to adjust to me. It's like I said earlier, lust is not so much primarily about sex or sexual desire oftentimes. It's so often about selfishness and power over other people. And we can see this over and over again. This becomes really clear, for instance, in the Me Too movement, right? According to many of the leading voices of the Me Too movement, many of the worst offenses that happened had to do with how men abused their power, how they took advantage of a workplace power imbalance and enacted their lust over women as a result. Perhaps the narrator of a Wendell Berry short story puts the definition of lust best. She says it this way, lust is selfish. It seeketh its own. Desire without selfishness, with self-denial, is only praise. It's even love. That's a lot to take in. I'm going to read it again. Lust is selfish. It seeketh its own. Desire without selfishness, with self-denial, is only praise. It is even love. That is really insightful. What he's saying there is lust is not just desire or even love. Lust is about seeking its own. Lust is about wanting and taking power over someone else. But it's really easy in sermons like this to slip into self-control mode. Jesus' first century audience were the most pious people in Galilee come to hear him speak. 
and they thought to a person, to a man and to a woman, that they could resolve to lust no more. (laughs) Just like so many of us here do when we hear the lust sermon, that's our takeaway so far, right? Filters, check. Accountability partner, check. Little community service, 40 days of dating my wife or husband, check, check. Getting back onto hinge, check. Getting off of hinge, check. Check, 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 check. We've got this. All set, except when the past struggles creep in again. And if patterns hold the way I can't stop staring or thinking, or that way that lust is escape from my anxiety, or it's excitement that give, it gives excitement to my data entry dreary days, or it's this, it's this bold move where I can hang on to a hot celebrity or sweet coworker or even that dreamy doctor from Grey Anatomy reruns. <laughs> Look, if, we, if that's, we're doomed. We're doomed. And if that's our takeaway, the t- is that the takeaway of this sermon? Is that the takeaway of this passage? Try harder next time. But how does Jesus handle our lust? And that's our third and final point this morning. What if Jesus fulfilled this law too? What if Jesus fulfilled the law, not just about adultery, but about lust. What if God became man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived a life of heart-level purity, and that heart-level purity meant that he didn't just avoid looking at women, he actually saw women. (laughs) He saw all of them deeply. What if this God become man who came to seek and to serve and to save the lost, those lost to their own lust, those lost to the wash of other people's lust? What if this Jesus died on a cross and came to rescue the very people, the very people who are filled with lust and who are lusted after too? What if I could be completely known as I am, naked and unashamed, not not needing to cover over anything, and at the same exact time, be so loved. Not just loved at a distance, but liked, enjoyed, appreciated for every bit of who I am. So I became a Christian in college. I didn't grow up Christian at all, and I became a Christian my sophomore fall of, of college. And then I went to, I got involved uh, in Christianity in the community there, and I went uh, to my very first uh, dating seminar, my first Christian dating seminar the summer of my sophomore year. And uh, it's a dating talk I'll never forget. The speaker talked about how we rush to intimacy too fast and outside of marriage. And so we physically and we emotionally misuse someone or ourselves. And as many of us know firsthand, this really hurts. It can wound us and it can wound other people. And to make this point uh, very clear, and this is, by the way, why I really don't use props when I, when I speak. He brought out a paper heart, and he brought out a hole puncher. And he began, as he described the different ways that lust operates, he would punch a hole into the paper heart. Clunk, 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 as he was talking. And it was so silent that you could hear the clack of the, the hole puncher and the terror of the paper. And everyone would just silently watch. I was watching as these little paper holes from that paper heart would fall end over end to the carpeted floor. Then the speaker said something very foolish. 
He said, and these holes in our hearts caused by sin can never be healed and they will be with us forever. After that comment, the speaker said a bunch of things. I was totally zoned out. Uh, I couldn't get over what he had just said and I was just staring at the floor, the carpeted floor littered with whole, like little paper circles that came from that paper heart. But I want you to hear that, that what the speaker said there is not true. And uh, really, it's not even the whole story of Christianity. Because you see, Jesus the healer shows up. He shows up among the pieces of our hearts. Even in our worst moments, even when we sin big and we do what we promised we would never ever do again. When we commit adultery, when we lust, even in those moments right after and we just feel the raw shame and guilt wash over us, there and then, Jesus shows up. And do you know what Jesus does when he reaches out and he shows up? He covers over our nakedness. He holds us in his arms and he sings over us. Do you know what he sings? He sings over our guilt and shame, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he sings over us until we believe that he is that beautiful and until we believe that we're that beautiful to him. And then, slowly but surely, Jesus bends down to the floor. He eases himself on his hands and his knees and he picks up the circular pieces of our hearts and one by one, ever so gently, he presses them back into place permanently. Or in the words of Jonathan Merritt, a writer, I'm wounded and while I have deep holes in my heart, they are not empty. They're filled with grace. Wounded while I have deep holes in my heart, they're not empty. They're filled with grace. You see, Jesus can smooth away. He can replace the holes where fear and failure have torn. And all we have to do is come to him with our hurt and our heavy hearts and say that one little word that's not just a description, but it's also a request. Broken. I'm broken again, Jesus. Would you heal me again? And he comes running. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for a hard passage like this, but also a beautiful truth. Lord, that you tell us how it is, that you're honest enough with us to tell us how it is, but also you're kind and loving enough to tell us it doesn't have to be that way all the time and how it really is that you are relentless and you pursue us. Even when we don't want to be pursued, you pursue us. And I pray that you would continue to do that even through... Uh, this time we've had together. Would you be relentless? Would you show your love for us? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.